Sometimes I have too many beers, which I gladly do and which I fully embrace. Working out, automatic. Blacking out, automatic. Catholic all-girls schools, automatic. Still is. It's the Litigation God Podcast. Hi, everybody. It's Miguel and Steve with the second episode of the Litigation God Podcast. And today we are thrilled to bring you uh, Phil Hook as our special guest. He is a plaintiff's lawyer um, who focuses on mineral rights. He actually went to law school with us uh, at Emory. Well, first of all, um, I introduce Phil to everyone I know as Daniel Day-Lewis from There Will Be Blood. Um, (laughs) I'd love to hear how that's not the case, Phil. Go ahead. Well, I mean, Daniel Day-Lewis was a bad guy. We're we're the good guys. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I mean, I I don't know. I got a weird situation. Uh, Fifth generation lawyer. Um, We are in an area of Pennsylvania that had oil and natural gas development for since like the 1860s. Um, So we've done pretty much on both sides. I mean, at one point we worked for Hillman and, and Mellon and Frick which are big evil robber barons. And now in the last hundred years or so, we've started suing those companies. So, and when, so really quick, let me stop you. And when you say that you recently started doing this, your bio says that you started working when you were like 11. Oh um, yeah. <laughs> so can you give us a little it back? It really has a sweatshop over there. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's the family business. I mean, it's like, if it was a, I don't know if it was like a laundromat. I mean, I would be working the laundromat when I was 12 during like the summer. So, you know, it's the law firm. So I started doing the, the most basic work, which is like uh, title work for establishing title to oil and gas parcels and uh, started doing that when I was like 12. Really? Wow. Okay. And then after that, I've accomplished nothing in my life. So. Well, yeah. no, I mean, I, I have also accomplished nothing. I, <laughs> I've done nothing on my own. I mean, your resume it just says that you've done absolutely everything under the sun. He um, has two resumes, dude. <laughs> what? But okay, so you went. You're in high school. You started working doing the title, um, which probably a lot of attorneys don't even know what the, how to do that, right? Like at this age. Um, well, and then, I mean, a lot of attorneys will pay some some other attorney like thirty dollars an hour to do it. That's that's why. I mean, it's just like basic dumb work. Got it. Okay, and then going to uh, to college. I mean, was was being an attorney your your goal since you were twelve? Yeah, well, uh, sort of. Um, I, I ended up falling into it. I originally wanted to go into business, just kind of like, you know, you're a kid. And you think, oh, I want to be a businessman. Um, then the kind of the fracking thing blew up in Pennsylvania back in, I think, started 2006, and we started getting sniffs of it. Uh, and by the time I was in college, I was like, oh, okay, it makes a lot more sense to go into law and in business. Got it, okay. And then after, uh, go ahead and see. Your, your office is in... Um Waynesburg, right? Pennsylvania? Yes, that is it. There's a county of 35,000 people and a town of 6,000 people. So, uh, so you're like the town lawyer, basically? Um, sort of. I mean, not really. I mean, um, we're not a general practice firm. We do have, we actually have two off, like, we have an oil and gas and mineral and coal office. And then we have like a general practice office that I've never been inside of. Um, but we basically serve a really small niche of people. Um, this probably in the tri-state area, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia. And and what exactly do you, is it more plaintiff side or, or is yeah, it just it's, it's entirely, well, so we basically serve mineral owners, which are normal people that happen to inherit mineral rights or wherever they got them from. But typically is, you know, they were a coal miner that lived on a farm for, you know, they inherited from their parents 
and they just happen to have mineral rights under it. And uh, it's you know it's a once in a lifetime uh, opportunity for them, and we want to make sure they're protected um, when they're negotiating with an oil and gas company that comes through or a coal mine that comes through. And then inevitably, the coal mine or oil and gas company tries to screw people over. So we also help those people. You know what's really funny, Asif? You always make fun of plaintiff's attorneys and you say they're liars, but all your close friends are plaintiff's attorneys. So I'm just going to throw that out there. No comment. <laughs> well, Based I mean, off that, Phil, Phil is the anti-Daniel Day-Lewis and There Will Be Blood, which is very yeah. awesome. Well, I mean, I, I think it's, it's something interesting. I, I want to hear about what you guys' experiences with plaintiff's lawyers because on – what we do, we feel like we always bring like really honest, here's a really clear problem that someone has had happen to them. Uh, I can imagine on the other side, though, when you're dealing with a ton of plaintiff's attorneys, you probably run into people that are just, you know, running mills and, you know, anything that fits inside the box for harm. They say, oh, okay, we'll turn this into a case. Right. So, yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. I think it's the problem is that when it's on the personal injury side, it's more about subjective, like pain, suffering, and stuff like that. Whereas your case is probably more objective, like here's the losses or here's what what it's worth based on, a, you know, evaluation, et cetera. So it's more objective. So there's less bullshit, I think. Yeah, well, that's and, actually and in your case. You're actually protecting the little guy from, you know, like the industry, which is very yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's people like, here's a great example that we had, an, you know, a, a client, you know, brother and sister. They have an elderly father who's like 80. He has dementia. Is dementia so bad he can't read or write? Um, but he, you know, he still is the title owner of the coal underneath his property. Um, they, the coal company sends landmen out to the property to get him to try and sell the property to the coal company. And the kids say, don't come to the, talk to the dad. Talk to us. The dad has dementia. Please don't talk to him. Um, they keep going after him for like a year. And eventually the kids are out of town when they approach him. Uh, landman for the coal company gives him a piece of, do- piece of paper, says, here, we're going to pay you $10 million for your coal. Uh, sign this. And the guy says, okay, great. And they go and find a notary and they sign it and uh, <laughs> execute a document. And then the kids get back and they look at the document and it's $10,000. Um, what? So it, it's it's stunning the type of just outright fraud and dishonesty these companies will do. And that's just one of a thousand examples I can give you. Are, are you at liberty to say like who your, your biggest arch nemesis is there? Like if there's anyone in the area listening if they were to stumble across mineral rights like who's the big bad wolf that's like going to come at their door are you are you allowed to say that or um i don't want to talk about who we regularly sue but i mean i can tell you there's there's better actors and there's worse actors and it depends on the industry and depends on on the company um wow phil hook 2024 that was beautifully said phil (laughs) but i mean in general, if it's a coal company run, I mean, I've never run into an honest coal company. Um, oil and gas sector, uh, most of them are dishonest. And if you're ever dealing with a landman, just never ever talk to them. Just hire a lawyer. Don't talk to the landman. Get the landman or get the lawyer to talk to the landman's boss, and you'll have an honest deal done. What is a landman? That just sounds like a yeah. scary, like a <laughs> yeah, exactly. Of a Jehovah's Witness that's going to be at my door. I, I don't know where this term came up from. It's it's probably a hundred years old. I don't know, but it's basically um, when a company needs to acquire rights to land, they will send out someone whose only job is to acquire those rights, and it's basically people that um, are very friendly, have very good interpersonal skills, but at the end of the day, their job is to get the rights to property for as cheap as possible. And so you just have an inherent mismatch of incentives there. And 
they typically end up lying and stealing from people. And also you have a mismatch between sophistication of the parties. I mean, you have like normal people going up against a, a coal company or a natural gas company. Um, Phil, big wigs. <laughs> one of our themes for litigation guide is that like most, most people or most attorneys that I know really hate their jobs. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, that's kind of like our, our pivotal theme is like, you know, attorneys are usually hating their jobs. Do you enjoy your daily practice? Yeah. I mean, I kind of, I kind of love it. I mean, like to help someone who has no one else out there that can help them is feels great. I mean, it's also when you're dealing with such large numbers of people, it's life changing amounts of money too. So, I mean, I've never really felt bad about anything I've ever had to do. I've never felt resentful about having to stay up till like four or 5 a.m. before filing. I mean, it's you just do what you have to do to help these people. You're like the guy from like Publisher's Clearinghouse. Remember that? <laughs> like show up with a big ass check. Like you made it, Harold. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's awesome to hear. And uh, why, why do you think most lawyers or just law students when they go to law school they have this idea and it, it never pans out they they start practicing and they start hating it. like why do you think that people don't talk about like the jobs that you do or it's just very hard there's barriers of entry so hard that people can't just go into your area of practice well i mean so there's a couple different reasons i mean I, I think the law the legal field is kind of structured towards one loading people up on debt so it it forces people to go into you can't take risks you have to go work for someone else that's going to pay you as much as possible, and that inevitably is going to be a defense firm. Um, and then also, there there are structural problems with trying to do what we do. I mean, it's a, it's a niche practice. Um, it's hard to break in any type of niche, and also just the the timelines for getting paid. I mean, our cases on average take about three and a half years before from inception to someone getting paid something. So it's not a quick turnaround. Have you ever had uh, an instance where you guys spend a ton of time and money into a case and it just doesn't pan out and you guys get a, there's a defense verdict? Oh, I mean, all the time. And typically, we're, we work probably 90% of our cases are on contingency. Um, we, we offer hourly, but in general, people don't choose that. Um, it sucks, but it happens. But on the other hand, I mean, I, liked, I, I do sincerely believe every case we bring is a very legitimate case, and I feel like we're pretty good at it, so we don't have a lot of big losses. The worst feeling is probably we get a settlement that's a lot worth less than what we could have gotten, but you know it's it's a bird in the hand versus two in the bush type situation usually. Can you can you tell us a little bit about what it's like practicing in Southern Pennsylvania, where <laughs> um, at times it's a little bit more rural? You know, because I, f- I feel like so much of the legal practice is just glamorized to be New York, D.C., L.A., but. They're, we're not really shining a light on the other parts of the country, so I'd love to hear about this. Okay, so that is a really interesting situation. I mean, it, the big offset to this is I, I love my clients, I love my work. I don't particularly like living in a rural area. I mean, it's just the, it's just a lack of amenities and a lack of people my age. I mean, the average age and where I am, I think, is in the mid forties, which means there's a ton of people that are retired age, and there's not a lot of people in their mid thirties. Are you single, um, Phil? No, no. I, my, my girlfriend's at the house right now. Got it. Nice. <laughs> are you trying to set me up with someone, or what's going on? No, no. I was, just, I was just wondering. No, I mean, that, that's, yeah, no. That would be a really big problem if I was trying to meet people. Um, it, it's a quality of life thing, and you have to offset. You know, do you like your worth and work enough to offset the quality of life that you would have living in a, a larger area? I mean, I'm about an hour from Pittsburgh, but that's not particularly close. 
I, I, don't, I don't see you throwing the terrible towel a, a, anytime soon. <laughs> but I guess my question then would be, um, if the median age and demographic is a little bit older, then I'd assume that some of the things like, you know, in New York, where most cases are e-filed, right? And I've done um, video depositions on the <laughs> I feel like you're going to have some old school guys who are practicing, you know, the same way that they did 30, 40 years ago, and they're not really that adaptive to change. Yeah, I mean, it, it works for you and against you. Um, it, it's the typical stuff you'd imagine in a, in a kind of rural area. You deal with a lot of people that are kind of resistant to change, and that covers everything between whether it's e-filing or just even the type of argument you want to do. Um, on the other hand, it also works with you. I mean, if you have a reputation, the reputation carries you very far away in a place like this. Um, but as far as just like sophistication of practice, it's very frustrating. Um, on the other hand, it also means a lot of the people you're going up against aren't that good at things. I mean, that's something that, that I face with a lot too. Um, I mean, I think the, the capability of attorneys is the same throughout the land. I think like just the technology changes, but, um, what are, what are some like really bad situations that you've like face opposing counsel who's just like not there at all? Um, I mean, so we, we are typically going against defense counsel, so it's not like we're going against like some solo who uh, can't tie his shoes. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like, I mean, uh, actually, this comes with clients a lot too. I mean, I have lots of clients that don't have email. I mean, we have to do everything in person. Um, we have to schedule meetings for everything. It slows down litigation a lot. Um, slows down negotiation a lot. Um, I mean, you mentioned e-filing. We don't have e-filing of anything here. It always there's always logistic problems. You always want to file things a day or two ahead of time, just because you don't know if something's going off. The, we've had an issue issue at the courthouse where the power was down, so they couldn't file anything that day. I mean, it, it's just weird things like that. The other thing like we're that, also trying uh, to do is bring everything that possible. Contracts mailbox rule. Huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we also offset by this by just trying to file everything possible federally. I mean, we try and avoid county courts if we can. See, that's interesting because most plaintiffs in that I deal with would never want to be in federal court. So it's cool that you guys actually seek that venue. Well, I mean, that's the thing is because a lot of our, our fights are law. We, we're not fighting about facts. I mean, the facts are clear. No one's disputing them. We're just fighting about how do we apply the law to it. And honestly, I want a smart judge for that as opposed to a guy that can be, you know, kind of bullshitted. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so out of, out of the people that you deal with, the ones that do have email addresses are <laughs> AOL email addresses, right? Yeah, yeah. AOL, Windstream, which is like a, a local internet provider around here. Yeah. Yeah, Seif wanted us, I don't know why, but Seif wanted us to add some sound, like AOL sound effects to this podcast. <laughs> I was actually <laughs> looking for some on. earlier. Like the sound of the door open. You've got mail. Right? <laughs> and like, yeah, I'll work on that, but I don't, it's kind of weird. Also, Phil, do you know that that is that Steve hasn't watched Shrek? I mean, I haven't watched Shrek. I mean, what's you, weird about that? Okay, that's you're, you're, Miguel. You're the weird one. Here. No, I, sorry, I, I completely disagree. Have you watched Have you watched Harry Potter? Uh, no, but it's 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 okay. No, that's you guys are. This is, this, this is law school. This is why people hate law school. Well, no, I mean, well, how do you interact with someone that doesn't know Shrek? We're a little bit older than you, I think. I mean, I think we're just a couple years older than you. How old are you guys? Mid early thirties. What does that? What does that mean? Thirty-two. Thirty-one. I'm thirty. I've watched oh. Shrek. I've watched Harry Potter. 
<laughs> Would you, do you know who Lord I, Farquaad I, I is? Don't feel yeah, I know who all the characters are. Yeah, so I, I told Asif, I was like, uh, this Peter Nelson dude, by the way, do you know who Peter Nelson is, Phil? No idea, no. He's the soup guy from HBO who apparently looks like Lord Farquaad from Shrek. Go, go. What's the soup? The suit? Oh, that they call him that. Do you remember Entourage, where they would call like the the representatives like Ari Gold, like suit? Oh, I, I get you. I get you. Saying. Okay, I thought like the agent. Suit. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, sorry, this, this is really good podcasting right now, where, where no one I can't understand what you guys are saying. Well, it's <laughs> a C, just... English is a C second language, so I, I yeah. kind of it is mine as well. So, um, but anyway, so what we were talking about is that um, yeah, the Shrek came into into a conversation because this Peter Nelson guy looks like Lord Farquaad and I was telling Seif that I wouldn't want him to like backstab me. So basically let's step back a little bit. I don't know if you've ever heard of this <laughs> podcast called Call Her Daddy. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. Okay, so basically they Call Her Daddy signed up with Barstool Sports um, and Dave Portnoy, if you're out there, Barstool Law, give us a call. <laughs> we will, we're there. Um, so anyway, this suit guy, the HBO Peter Nelson dude, can't, comes in and tells one of the girls not to sign up with for for uh, future contracts, whatever. So now the the show is just their contract, right? So the show's over, basically, right, Asif? Uh, oh yeah, okay, I, I heard about this. Um, okay, yeah, I heard about this in the context of okay, I listened to a this is the uh, Caller Dad is kind of like the female centric podcast. There's a, right. a, a way really, really bad one called Come Town out there that's kind of a dude's rock podcast. <laughs> and I heard about Call Her Daddy through the Come Town podcast. Okay, got it. Very interesting. <laughs> there, there's uh, a little uh, drop for that. I need- <laughs> Greyhound bus. Taking the Greyhound bus to Come Town. <laughs> there you go. I definitely need to, want to listen to that show. That is hysterical. Um, but yeah, so anyway, I asked to see if, if he knew who Lord Farquaad was and he didn't know what, what the hell I was talking about. Um, anyway, B- Peter Nelson looks like Lord Farquaad, but let's move on. This is, uh, this is Miguel trying to shame me for not watching Shrek. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. It's okay. I'll, I'll yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you should have watched Shrek so you could have followed the po- Call Her Daddy saga better. <laughs> <laughs> so reeling things in a little bit. Um, Phil, I understand that you're an expert in bird law. Is that correct? Uh, not really. I, I do remember this conversation with I. Or I told us, uh, Miguel about that. Um, avian law comes. It's not really avian <laughs> law. It's, it's fucking just uh, general. Uh, you, I can't tell if you're being serious. No, I mean it, it does come. It does come into play a little bit. We negotiate a lot of surface use agreements with these companies, and we live in a heavily forested area. And there's a lot of bat populations. And there's certain times of the year where they can't cut down trees because they would affect those bat populations and bird populations. And it just means that there's certain times of the year where we know that if they don't get a deal done now, they're going to have to wait six months. So it makes it a little easier to get stuff done. So you actually are well-versed in the bird law? Yes, I'm an expert in bird law. Specifically, what, what, what statue? What's the statue called? I literally we, don't even know the statue. We, we based this entire <laughs> podcast around basically just getting a soundbite of you saying you're well versed. Can you tell us? A, can you tell us a fun fact about bird law at least? No, I, I literally don't know anything about it. I just I just know that um, towards the like towards um, fall you cut can't cut down trees because it would interrupt the brown bat population, which can help you get a better permit. Seeing seeing a bird, obviously, right over a bat. Uh. Yes, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know shit about this. I don't know anything about anything. That's, this is your key mistake you made by bringing me on here is I know nothing about anything. Well, actually, you know what? This is a good transition point because there are so many things that 
like our family members expect us to oh do god they think lawyers know how to do that i i have no clue like if, if if like a neighbor came up and asked for help with a dwi i wouldn't know shit if somebody asked for help with their will i wouldn't know shit like i it, actually like what, what do you say to skills? people what do you say to people when they come up to you with that because I, i'm trying to work on the perfect excuse or perfect excuse to not trying to help you know not be able to do it well, the trick is to be so incompetent in the first place that they don't approach you. <laughs> I mean, no, that's sort of is my excuse. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say, listen, I, I, I don't do criminal law. I would actually, I know so little about it. I would hurt your case if I did anything. That, that's literally <laughs> what I tell people. Yeah, I know 100%. That's why I'm surprised when Asif doesn't know how to do criminal law because he was a prosecutor. <laughs> that's why I, you want to explain that a little more, Asif? How to prosecute DWIs. I just can't. I can't defend them. Interesting. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, people always talk talk about like, oh, I want to go and you know, I want to go work in big law so I can learn how to sue these guys. And from talking to people that go work in big law, I don't know if you really learn how to actually litigate this stuff on the plaintiff side. You just learn how to like, uh, you know, draw stuff out and find technical problems and complaints. But I don't really know if you learn anything about how to properly do a good complaint and good litigation strategy. I, I have to disagree with that. Learn anything? Yeah, I have to disagree with that a little bit. I think okay, that yeah. being on the defense side does expose you to like a variety of different um, ways that plaintiffs litigate cases, so that you you're adept to like, oh well, this guy is going to do this because I've you know I've I've seen this in the past. So you, you're able to pinpoint uh, kind of trends, um, and I think it does give you um, a bird's eye view of of litigation in general because you're dealing with so many different types of of cases and lawsuits and statutes and all that. So I, I think it does give you a good. You're, you're saying this as a, as a fourth year, right? And you've probably done more depositions than the typical fourth year big law associate. Yeah, I, uh, I'm really curious, Miguel. What, what can you can you identify? Sort of like, can have you done enough where you were able to say, okay, this is a really good strategy, or this is a really good plaintiff? Like, what what can you talk more about that? I'm really interested, honestly. Yeah, so so I'll answer Steve's point first. So I'm not like the typical uh, big law associate who went straight from law school to big law. I uh, started doing worker compensation and just general insurance defense at first. So I took a deposition a weekend. I literally, my boss was sick that day. There was no other uh, attorney to cover the deposition. So they just threw me in. So I, I took probably after six months, I had already taken like 25 to 30 depositions um, and attended hearings and all that. So I got thrown in the deep end pretty quickly. Um, but then to your point, Phil, about just learning about other, about the way plaintiffs work, I did do so many different types of cases from bad faith insurance cases to uh, commercial liability cases, all types of different cases where we're dealing, even employment cases, we're dealing with plaintiffs, lawyers. And I think it does expose you to um, A, you, you kind of see like, okay, this guy is bullshitting me. And I know if if a plaintiff's attorney is bullshitting, defense counsel is not going to trust him at all. And it's going to uh, kind of make settlement difficult or even mediation because there's no trust so i i do i does i do think like it does give you a sense of of how to accomplish your goals in, a, in an easier more efficient way if that makes any, well, any sense well I, I guess i guess the cool question was did you get exposed to like really good plaintiff's attorneys where you're like okay that is something i need to be doing as a plaintiff attorney 100 percent, 100 percent. yeah it was it was far and few in between but 100 <laughs> percent. okay no no, <laughs> no I, I, I totally agree with that i mean i was literally talking to my girlfriend about she's also a, a big law attorney and we're She's a defense attorney, and we were talking about this 45 minutes ago. And she's saying, yeah, I mean, it doesn't look – the good attorneys on the plaintiff side seem to be, seem to be few and far between. 
do you do you need to be a good plaintiff's attorney because you can be average and you can just do just fine that's right? the problem but that's the problem you, you don't need to try because you can things just settle so easily yeah it just depends on your your kind of your client pipeline if you have a big pipeline you have good client acquisition you can just spam as many cases you want and you'll end up with decent settlements or enough small settlements that make sense um it also depends on the type of case you get obviously if you're getting a you know a bunch of multi-million dollar claims then you probably don't want to be spamming those but if you're getting you know a hundred twenty thousand dollar claims then yeah go ahead yeah i agree with that asif what do you think you you do a lot of defense work have you have you not been exposed to like the way plaintiffs attorneys work and, and like if you have to switch sides i feel like you'd be you have a good insight dave if you're listening um barstool law call brett daddy <laughs> you make it happen <laughs> Oh, call Brett Daddy. I love that. Um, so, Phil, um, since this is a generational firm, um, do you do you have any tips, or is there anything that you've seen in terms of maintaining some of the longer client relationships that you've had? I mean, it, it sounds trite, but I mean, like, be a good lawyer and give a shit about your clients. I mean, I mean, probably the first thing is actually sincerely care about them. People aren't stupid. They'll notice that. Or if you don't care, they'll also notice that. Um, and then the second thing is obviously just be good, care about your cases, put work in, um, and you should get results for your clients. Do you do a lot of work marketing, um, or is it more something that the <laughs> firm handles? No, we we really don't even have a website. I mean, we it's entirely word of mouth, and we have we we cannot process so much uh, enough people. I mean, enough work. I mean, we have too many clients. Um, wow. And honestly, that's that's another element of kind of the intergenerational intergenerational law firm is I'm the youngest guy by thirty years, thirty some years, and I'm the first person to come in in probably twenty years. Um, so it's been a really interesting thing to come into a firm that's very very set in the way it's done things um, and has no interest really in changing stuff. Um, but I, I, on the other hand. One, I know they're not going to be around for much longer, so I'm forced to build stuff and change stuff. But you run up against, you know, well, hey, I've been doing this for the last 20 years, 30 years. Why do I need a change? I'm also going to be retiring in five years. Like, why are you bothering me? Wow, that's that's awesome, though, because a lot – so right now, um, I, I don't think I've – I think I told you this a little bit, but my, my boss and I, he started his own firm. I'm working with him. And just the, the amount of marketing that we, we have to do just to get clients is just so much. And law school really doesn't train you for that. No, there's no business of law whatsoever. I mean, that's something that's I've noticed really well just from looking at watching my girlfriend work uh, during you know uh, Corona, what's it called, uh, lockdown time, versus the way I work. I mean, she spends ten hours a day doing briefing and research and memos, and I am on the phone for four or five hours, and then I might do two hours of briefing, and then I have like three hours of admin tasks. I mean, it's completely different type of work having to be at one at a small firm level but also just man you know partly managing a practice is your uh, girlfriend happy with her work or no uh, i mean probably i don't know <laughs> <laughs> no I'm no not i, a I good listener either yeah i mean I, I, don't, I haven't talked to her in about two weeks <laughs> she's in another room right now a no, legend a legend girlfriend <laughs> yeah no i mean she uh, i think i mean I don't know. From talking to people that work in big law, it seems like there's always a certain amount of dissatisfaction from one, the amount of time you have to put in, and two, kind of like the disconnect between like you and the client. There's not doesn't seem to me like there's a lot of investment in the clients, 
which makes one investing all that time in the work for the clients even harder. Um, and then also, you know, if you're defending someone that's probably done something bad in the first place, it doesn't feel very good either. But I mean, I don't know. It, it, it's it pays well. <laughs> no, can't can't argue with that. So just to um, just to unpack something that you said earlier, um, you know, when you're coming into uh, this generational firm and you're you know, 20, 25 years younger than everyone else, and there's no one that's really close to your age or is going to be close to your age entering the firm, I mean, that's a lot of responsibility and pressure there. Can you talk about some of the challenges of basically taking over the family business? Um, you have to stop asking for permission and just do things and then be willing to get yelled at afterwards. I mean, that's, that's the, the best thing that's I've learned life, so far. Yeah. yeah, it's just, if you ask for permission, you're going to get told no a lot and then you're going to figure out reasons why, okay, I couldn't do this is because I got told no. And it's really just do it. And if you get results, great. And if something bad happens, okay, apologize for it. Uh, and just don't do anything that would blow up the firm. Right. Phil, what's the thing you miss most about law school? Oh, uh, not having to do any work. That was, that was the best part about law school was there, not having to do no anything. There are no consequences. Yeah, there's no, no consequences. consequences. Like the the worst thing in the world you could do is get like a C plus. I mean, you'd have to like kill your professor to get a C plus. Like if someone went went up to you and was like, "Hey, I want to go. I want to be a lawyer. I want to go to law school." Would you be like, "Yeah, go like go after it, like get it," or we'd be like, "Eh." Yeah. Um. So, on one hand. I wasn't really surprised that much. I mean, it seemed to be pretty standard and bland. Um, it actually was more fun than I was expecting. Uh, I was kind of expecting just to kind of have my nose to the grind block the whole time, and it really wasn't that bad, and it ended up being pretty fun. And the people were... There was a group of people at law school that were great people, and I, had a, I, I, you know, I found and, and I really enjoyed my time with them. Um, so like four I, people. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> no, I mean, in general, I like my classmates a lot. I mean, I think there was a lot of good people there. We had a good uh, class. Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, okay, just to backtrack, like if if you were on a flight, right, and you're just making small talk with the person. Oh you, God. Yeah. Hey, I'm think I, I'm uh you know I took the LSAT. Um, I'm sending out my applications right now without knowing too much. What would your initial gut reaction be? Yeah, no, just don't go to law school. Well, first of all, tell me your LSAT, and I'll tell you whether you can go to law school that you can get a decent <laughs> job out of that will also give you a scholarship. Those are the two things you should be looking for: is a free law school that you can get a good job out of, and if you can't get both of those things, you really might not want to go to law school. Yeah, I agree with that. Or you have intergenerational wealth, or you can walk into a job afterwards. But I mean, like, on average, you probably shouldn't go to law school. It's not a the average lawyer seems very unhappy uh, and probably underpaid. Uh, I mean, if you compare the amount of work they do and how intelligent they are compared to like people in like, I don't know, the finance world, uh, they're really, really underpaid. Yeah, no, that's that's a huge point. I agree with that. People in finance are are like three or four years younger than me are and making equally or more than than me are. Yeah. Um, I have a question for you for people that want to go into a smaller firm, like, you know, like a family firm or a smaller firm. How do you uh, get into that type of, of work if you don't have any connections to that specific family or that the lawyer who's managing the firm? How do you get into into that? How do you, you know, get that job? Get so into it. 
Yeah, very into it. I mean, so it depends what you're going into, but I mean, I'll tell you this. There's a dearth of quality lawyers out there. So first of all, just be good. You can probably get hired somewhere and end up taking over their firm. Or I've seen a lot of times more often, actually, is people just end up leaving the firm after four or five years and taking a bunch of their clients. Um, so just be good and you should be able to kind of make your own path. Have you guys hired people, have other attorneys or you guys haven't had to? Uh, I don't think we've ever hired someone as, as, as far as long as I've been alive. I don't think we've ever hired anyone. Um, there are five hooks in the firm though. So there's, <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's a decent amount of us as lawyers. What's the name of the firm? Hook, hook and hook. No, just hook and hook. I got it. That's pretty awesome though. It's keep the bloodline alive. We'll make it cute. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Squared. That's that's not bad. Well, I mean, I, I feel like I should be asking you guys questions. I mean, like, I'm really interested in like Miguel. Like, what is your sort of like? How did you? Why did you decide to leave big law? I mean, I, I, it sounds like you got a really nice opportunity as a plaintiff's attorney. But like, what's kind of what was your kind of like? The, what was the plan that was presented to you? Like, okay, here's the opportunity to leave. Here's where you are now. Here's where you'll be in like three, five years. I mean. What was the kind of the thought process going on there? So I always wanted to be a plaintiff's attorney and um, Big Law for me was kind of more of getting that that Big Law experience and making some good money so I could pay off some loans and take some more risk later on. So I was just waiting for the good opportunity and I had actually um, gotten recruited from one of these really good firm, plaintiff's firm here in Florida. They wanted me to bring me in, but I, I just didn't see I was going to be another number rather than be part of like, you know, the leadership of the firm. So when I, when uh, I had the, this opportunity, um, my boss was going to open his own firm. Um, and I kind of reached out to him and I was like, Hey, like I would, you know, I, I would really want to jump ship and go with you because I think this is a great opportunity. Not only am I going to be able to practice law, but I'm going to be able to be part of the, the creation of a new business entity. So like right now I'm working on the website, marketing SEO, um, working on getting, on targeting new product liability cases, uh, using the SEO, which is really interesting. You know, it's it like you yeah. say, like you say, most of my previous work in big law was just writing a brief or researching for ten hours. Um, now I'm doing admin stuff, like you say, um, and it's kind of interesting because right now we don't have a lot of, like a big staff, so I, I have literally have to do every scheduling, everything. So it just teaches you. Like I, I never thought I could do all this, but you really can if you put your your head down and work. You know? Yeah, I mean it's. It's not hard. It's just very, very time-consuming. I mean, I, I've gone a couple years where I actually didn't have a lot of support staff. So right now, I'm training a paralegal and training a secretary, uh, and it's the only way I've been able to do it is having to train someone from the ground up because people in the area just didn't have the skill set I was looking for. Um, yeah, I think the problem with with like hiring, like especially now. I'm very loyal, so I'm gonna put a lot of time into training you and mentoring you. And, and I, I feel like that's probably what our bosses felt like when we left, when I left my prior jobs, because they were putting you know the time and effort. But it's just really tough when you do all that and then they just you know decide to leave you. It's like. Yeah, I mean, that, that's what I'm saying. It's like you can't, the, war, the best way to set yourself up for disappointment in anything in life is to expect gratitude. <laughs> just like, it's right. never gonna be there. Yeah, so just prepare people to leave if you don't have the incentive structure there to keep them there. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And it's another thing that's really tough, um, Asif, I don't know if you've dealt with this, but starting uh, as a young attorney, when you're dealing with paralegals that are a little bit older or assistants that are like way older than you are, maybe like in their 50s or 60s, and you're now telling them what to do and you're 26, and I I didn't have a beard back then because I, I still can't grow a beard, but I, I barely <laughs> walk around with nothing, you know, no, no, pre -puberty over here, but. no facial hair, and I'm telling them what to do. 
the the other thing is because they've been at the firm for so long they actually do know more than you 100 they know so much about like filing and the office culture that it, it is kind of an awkward situation to be in sometimes by giving them which is essentially commands of course i mean i think we're, we're all kind of the same as in like we're decent respectful people but i've also seen plenty of attorneys that have talked down to their support staff like they're nothing which is always a, is a terrible way to have a career i never understand yeah. that i never understand that because at the end of the day if you're in the office late and you need help because it's life or death like they're not going to be there for you if you're treating them like crap or you know if you're not valuing them as individuals rather than just you know as a robot or getting the work done yeah i mean i i've seen so much of that it just makes me i would I've endeavored to hopefully never ever do that because one, it just makes the person doing that looks like shit, like an asshole. It looks like a shitty, weak person. I don't want to be that person. I know, hundred percent. And then people aren't, you know, if you don't build, if you don't act like you want others to act, then they're never going to act like that. And it's going around, going to go around the whole office, and it's going to be kind of like a, a virus that takes over. Yeah. Oh, what is this? We're, we're entering like Doctor Phil territory. <laughs> do, do you have any other inspirational quotes you want to pull out? Of yeah, I could find some Shrek ones to uh, enlighten you if you'd like. <laughs> yeah, Miguel, what, do you have anything that's not from Disney or Pixar? Okay, first of all, Shrek is not Disney or Pixar. So okay, see, there you go. <laughs> you guys, wait, 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 if it's not Pixar, what is it? I don't. I actually don't know the answer to that, but I just know that it's not Disney or Pixar. I think it's. I don't. I don't know. Another. I, I don't know. I actually have no clue, but it's not Disney. Um, in, in defense of Shrek. All right, let's go. <laughs> we need we need like we need someone uh like a fourth person who is doing like google searches for us you know as we have uh questions they could just search for stuff okay well you know anybody who's listening and isn't is an expert on shrek well versed in the shrek trilogy is it three movies or four um dm us we'll, we'll have you on and we can uh we can get the rundown on shrek we'll take yeah, a well, tour okay th this podcast is really looking for a shrek expert it's dreamworks DreamWorks. Oh, DreamWorks makes Shreks, yes. If, if you specialize in Shrek law, now's your time to shine. I just think it's it's unbelievable. You guys never watched Shrek. Oh, my God. You guys should watch Shrek now that you're in quarantine. So I, I'll i be fair. The, the reason why I never watched Harry Potter was I kept being called um, – I looked like the who's, – who's the guy's Harry Potter? In high uh, school, I looked like Tim. So I just, out of uh, principle, never paid attention to it. So, Steve, I got a question right. about um, – <laughs> what's uh are you serious about wanting to leave law i mean are you, are you serious about that or is that just kind of like you hate it and I, I get that or are you honestly looking to leave um well you know what because because my name's come out so many times throughout this episode <laughs> uh, we're, we're gonna we're gonna punt this question for another day i think well, better the only, the only reason i brought that up is i wanted to talk about pivoting to transactional work which I uh, I have ended up doing a fair amount of transactional work, um, and I actually kind of love it. Um, but it's also something I just kind of fell into. What type of transactional work do you do? So, um, my brother actually ended up starting a company that is sort of a payday lender for oil and gas producers. Um, it's very complicated, but basically they loan and they control for production risk and price risk of the underlying commodity. Um, most of the price risk control is through financial hedging and there's no other lender out there right now offering these types of products and they're killing it. And it's so, really, really fun to be going to talking to the like small oil and gas companies and them having to, you know, basically suck you off. 
I totally forgot that you were in this space. And I think when the whole uh, oil crash happened a couple a couple of weeks ago when you know futures were negative <laughs> i actually <laughs> i actually texted you and you were telling me that you guys were actually buying futures because you you guys had places to house the oil right oh yeah yeah i mean just out of luck we ended up being part of a deal where we ended up actually owning part of a field in uh, well i won't say the state but i mean we ended up owning part of a field that was an old field that had a ton of storage on it um and we actually ended up making a shitload of money just because we had that asset and we were able to take advantage of it at the right time, the right place. And total luck, but uh, interesting times. So get, get into that a little more though. Oil for Christmas. Okay, right? shit, you, yeah. Um, so you so, actually had the land and you bought the futures at negative price so yeah, that they had to yeah. pay you for to store them? Yeah, and well, don't quote me on this. I'm the lawyer, so I don't know anything. But the way these contracts work <laughs> is you basically buy uh, it's a futures contract you buy and a thousand barrels right yeah and when the, the due date comes you actually have to either take delivery of the contract or basically pay the person off and the when it when the, i think it was in april april 20th or something like that right a lot of these contracts you know a whole set of contracts came due for that month and there was not enough storage capacity left in the u.s and prices were already low and basically what you had happen was something that's never happened in the last as far as this stuff has existed and these contracts actually went negative because people didn't want to have to take physical possession of the contract of the oil that was underlying these contracts so if you did have some place to store these contracts or sorry, store the oil from these contracts people would actually pay you to take the oil and, has there um, has there been any litigation as to that yet i don't know um there's a really interesting um, ETF called USO. Oh, I listen, I don't want to talk about that because I had open <laughs> open interest options. And so USO is an ETF that is supposed to track the price of oil. But after this fiasco, it stopped tracking. And I think oil is at $33 and USO is still at 26. And I still have lost a plenty amount of money. I don't yeah, want to I talk. Was, I, I was about to shit talk everyone who bought this because they didn't understand what the fuck they were actually buying. And uh, apparently the people who created the ETF never modeled a possibility for prices to go negative. So the model, I mean, the, the ETF just exploded more or less. Yeah, I, I used to, I mean, I've been training USO for, for a long time. Even when I was in law school, I was training a little bit doing options and I've always lost money on options and I still do it. <laughs> hey, it's just gambling with another, another name, it's fine. Yeah, I think I think it, it makes you sound smart when you say like, oh yeah, I bought you know four calls for uh, January twenty twenty first, twenty twenty one. Yeah, see, I I know enough people that do trading that when I try and talk about, it, I know I just look stupid. So I, if someone asks me about options, like I don't I don't know what that is. I don't know what a strike or <laughs> put is or I don't know anything. It's, yeah, it's it's yeah. kind of aggressive. It's like everything's aggressive in like the futures market, like puts and strikes. It's like why are people so you know what I mean? Take a chill pill. Well, you know, people strikes, takedowns. Yeah, it's <laughs> you know, it, it's like you see people making tons of money, and you just don't see the people losing everything, and so you want to, you know, you want to be in the in on the game. No, it is. Oh. It's too many fucking people watched um, the Wolf of Wall Street, and then yeah, all of a sudden, yeah. that became like a personality for them. Like before, <laughs> it was just Patrick Bateman from yeah, yeah. and before Psycho, before that was American Psycho, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, now it's you know, um, we were still in law school when American Psycho came out, but I will never forget um, 
one of the first nights out after the movie came out, I was catching up with somebody and I was like, blah, 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 bullshitting, you know, the usual, how was your summer, blah, blah, blah. Movie, the movie came up and he goes, dude, I love that movie because it covered my two favorite things, <laughs> making money and getting fucked up. <laughs> Wait, cool. is this kid that we're talking about from California? No, it's, uh, it's South Carolina. Go for it. Uh, interesting. But, <laughs> uh, at that point, like my mind just like hopped into a spaceship and just and I was like, I can't believe the level of idiocy. And you know what? That was what, 2014, 15, and it's it's a personality now, right? Like quoting quoting fucking the scenes from that passes off as a personality. Well, I mean, like. People do that with everything. You know, they they. Uh, it's very easy to just assume a personality. It's very easy to fucking assume the lawyer personality, and uh, you know, as opposed to like being an interesting or a nice person, you just end up assuming the personality of this thing you want to be, or being funny or laughing. Like yeah, it, yeah, or being fucking funny. Yeah. You know, like, since we're talking about um, assuming the personality, um, I like I never watched Suits, and I probably watched. I never watched an episode of Law and Order in full. I just Ever? Random clips. I just saw random clips. Did you have a TV like growing up? Office. Like, I just didn't care. And I don't, what, what's the other law TV show? I don't know what else. To, I never watched any of it. The you watch Billy? I didn't have a personality to, to not, but like. Model well, yourself after. Do you, do, you, do you guys not watch Billions? No. no oh, yeah. oh, great show. Yeah, that looks like a good show. Great, great show. It's, I mean, it's it's lawyer and like law and finance together. It's great. Let's see if you'd love it. It's, it's about you know one of the main characters uh, was the the uh, U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Oh wait, that's the one where where, where the uh, with the Axe Capital. The, yeah, well, and, and the the attorney is like a, a sadomasochist. He likes to get his balls yes. stepped on, right? Yes. That's the only he thing I know about. Getting it. his ball stepped on. Yeah, yeah. Jeez. <laughs> it, it's a lot well, more interesting. Does. We only life. get two of them. That's Paul Giamatti. I think it's Paul Giamatti yeah, who plays Giamatti. yeah Chuck Rhodes and uh, his wife. And everybody thinks that uh, his wife Wendy Rhodes is very similar to Julie McCain, who we work with. Everybody's always saying that. Wait, but, so is is there a scene where this guy gets his balls stomped on? I'm pretty I sure it's something like that, or at least he gets whipped <laughs> or something. It's definitely a scene where he's in leather because I've seen a a gif gif of that. Is it gif or gif? I think it's GIF. GIF. I, yeah, I like GIF. GIF. I, I just say both in case I get yelled at. <laughs> it's, the southern, it's the Southern Pennsylvania and I'm coming out. You deal with enough air while you addresses. Wait, Phil, did you watch uh, Suits growing up or no? No, I've never seen Suits. I, I'm the same way as the Seif. I never really watched any lawyer shows. Um, Even Law and Order? No, I mean, I, like I've probably seen clips. I know the Dun Dun thing, but I have never seen a sh- full episode. Wow, there's another great show, Phil. I think you'd love. It's called Goliath on Amazon. It's about oh, a plaintiff. Oh, yeah. you've seen Goliath? Great, great yeah. show. The first season Goliath. was good. After that, it got really bad. Yeah, I, I like Billy Bob Thornton and whatever he does. So whatever. Uh, Better Call Saul. I, that's that's probably my favorite lawyer centric show. But that's also I kind of like uh, is it David Gilliam. Uh, whoever the, the showrunner on that is, is great. Everything he touches is good. Um, yeah, Good Wife. Have you guys watched Good Wife? Probably not. Why would I watch that? <laughs> it's a good good show. <laughs> oh, I watch I watch funny. way I way I watch way too much television. Yeah, I but, thought you were trying to I thought you were trying to start a law firm here. Why are you watching so many shows of 
because I'm, I'm getting pumped with, with like, <laughs> I want to be a good lawyer. You know what I mean? I actually watched a great movie that I think all lawyers should watch uh, recently. I think, I, I don't know if I talked to you about it, but it's called Dark Waters. It's about oh, yeah. the... I thought he was going to say To Kill a Mockingbird. Now so, I uh, my shit. <laughs> yeah. So, Miguel, so that's about Parkersburg and, you know, the... Yep, the DuPont and the yeah. Teflon scandal. Yeah, uh, C8. Uh, Parkersburg is about two hours for me. I mean, that's that part of the country, in West Virginia in particular, that is a horrible thing that happened in that movie, but that's not unusual at all. It's emblematic of the attitude of industry in this area. It's fucking mind-boggling how bad things are in that state um and i'm right next door to it um it i I kind of feel terrible when i have clients out there and hear the things that have been done to them by companies yeah that's that's heartbreaking um i honestly and it's heartbreaking how he was actually in big law and this is a true story he was in big law and then he switched to defend the plaintiffs and he spent 15 years fighting this one case and then finally got paid off but like you know it's it's tough it's not easy why why don't you explain the premise for people yeah, yeah, so so the premise of the movie is basically uh, DuPont uh, was producing Teflon. I feel I think this was like what in the fifties, forties. Yeah, it started in the fifties or forties. Um, they they had a bunch of manufacturing plants in the Ohio River Valley, which is a, a river that runs pretty much the entire western border of West Virginia. Other side is Ohio and I think Kentucky eventually. Um, but they were producing something a compound called C8, which is the main compound in Teflon, and it's really interesting because it. Um, the whole point of the Teflon compound is it's uh, it, it's hydrophobic, and nothing can really get through it uh, very easily. It's a very strong chemical comp- compound. Now the problem with it is it's it's too strong. It doesn't break down in nature. It does not. Nothing will break it down. Sunlight doesn't break it down. Uh, you know, friction doesn't break it. Nothing will break it down eventually. It Sounds like a thief in the courtroom. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a dumb, angry guy. <laughs> that's that's me. <laughs> But so what it does? Yeah, hey, one trials that way. <laughs> it, it just accumulates in the in the environment, and also anything you ingest, it accumulates in, in um, your your you know, your tissues and stuff like that. And it's also carcinogenic. So if you're exposed to it, uh, it builds up over time and will cause cancer. And especially if you're exposed to it in high concentrations, like in a manufacturing area. Um, and add on top of it, the fucking DuPont and I think 3M were just dumping it in the environment. Well, you have these huge cancer clusters in towns that are like 50,000, 100,000 people in them. And, and like what the, the worst part about that whole thing it was the criminality of it. They actually knew that it was oh, causing yeah. cancer. They had, you know, decades of studies, even in-house studies where all the a lot of people that were producing and helping manufacture the, the Teflon were getting cancer. Their kids were getting cancer and they were just hiding everything. And the, you know what the worst part about all this? All of these companies, you think like, OK, they, they're going to learn from this, you know, huge <laughs> lawsuit. And then we have right now Roundup. I actually have a couple of Roundup cases I'm working on. And they were doing the same thing. Bayer, Bayer was, um, you know, and Monsanto was doing the same exact thing. They knew that the ingredients in Roundup were causing cancer and they were just still marketing, not, you know, not telling the FDA or any of these governing agencies what really was going on. And that's also happening now. I don't know if you guys have heard of the Zantac yeah. issues. Yeah. So, I mean, so the, the calculus like- on the, on the kind of the, the uh, these companies, you know, on their side is basically, okay, we may have to fight a lawsuit for 10 years and we have litigation costs and maybe we have a verdict for hundreds of million dollars. But when you're when the, when the product itself is making hundreds of million dollars every quarter, it doesn't make any sense to stop producing it. It's just, there's no financial incentive for them to stop doing it. Do you think that's 
starting to change with um, you know those Johnson Johnson verdicts that came out last year. No, fuck no. I mean, you could you could point out the uh, you know the cigarette verdicts uh, from 20, 30 years ago and say, oh, okay, uh, maybe industry will finally stop doing things that they know is killing people, and well, nothing's changed. Nothing has changed. Uh, in fact, you have you've had a lot of tort reform in the, that time. You've had the erosion of what private uh, attorney general actions. I mean, you. If anything, it's probably much worse now than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. But I think the the big difference, like, I don't know if you guys remember, but with the whole Chevron scandal, was it Chevron? No. What was the, the big Enron? Enron, Enron. Sorry. Enron? Okay. Yeah, I had a, a small brain part. So the Enron scandal, um, it, it actually caused the the main executives of Enron to face jail time because of the fraud. I think if these big corporations end up facing the same consequences. Uh, but remember, Miguel, that was financial fraud. They were, defa- they were defrauding and lying to investors. They weren't killing people. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, lo- Powerful quote. Powerful quote. Like, logically, it just doesn't make any sense. I think the day that the government steps up and institutes criminal penalties for the people that are killing these you know, consumers, then everything will change. But till then. Oh, yeah. It's just money. Right. Yeah, I mean, right now it's, it's just civil penalties and it's just a, a math problem. So they're, they're going to just keep doing whatever the math problems tells them to do. And right now it says keep killing people or doing causing harm, whatever it is. Um, Phil, really quick before we leave, how if someone wants to, to reach out to you and contact you, what's the best way? Uh, I, I have no website. Um, I have no work email. <laughs> um, my, I don't want to put my phone number out on the internet. Um, so re- reach out to the uh, to these guys. Reach out to the, uh, the, uh, so the, the podcast. So if you're in southern Pennsylvania and it turns out you have mineral rights, uh, DM us. Yeah, and, yeah. and you happen to be listening to this podcast. DM these guys. Listen, I'm all about that because I'm going to force you to give us a referral fee. So I'm all about that. I like, will happily give you a referral fee. Great. Uh, <laughs> I mean, right. I mean, honestly, if you have oil and gas litigation needs, I mean, reach out to these guys, and I, I will set you up with someone whoever, wherever you live. Uh, we know lots of per, uh, attorneys. Awesome, Phil. All right, thank you so much. Thanks, yep, Phil. good talking, guys. Go. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back next week.